Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I am your host, John Williamson, and we are back this week with part two of my discussion on the topic of grief uh, with the amazing Megan Devine. Hopefully you listen to part one. If you haven't yet, go back because this won't make any sense to you at all. So pause, go back, listen to last week's uh, episode one, and then come back and listen to this part. If you've already heard part one and you were excited uh, and chomping at the bit to hear the second part, well, here you go. Uh, Otherwise, Check out www.thedeconstructionist.com for any podcast-related goodies. Um, We've got a web store on there. We've got a Patreon. We've got a blog. We've got all our back catalog of episodes. Uh, We've even got some cool black and white photos of the side of my face. Um, I'm not sure that's a selling point, but it's on there. Otherwise, if you love what we're doing here and have a second... Uh, rate, review, and follow us. And uh, also tell a friend. Uh, word of mouth is one of the biggest ways in which we have been able to grow our audience. So we always appreciate that uh, if folks find this podcast content helpful, uh, that you spread the word. And um, yeah, thank you very, 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 very much. And uh, with that, let's get to it. Part two with Megan freaking Divine. I can go on. (laughs) (laughs) And and you do in the book too. I do. I do because it is an issue. It is an issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so, there's so much we could possibly (laughs) cover today, but people need to read the book. It's so good. Um, It's so good. And it's not, hold on. I want to say something here because (laughs) if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't need to listen to her rant about other cultures and Buddhism (laughs) and mindfulness. And I don't need to listen to her rant about how bad people are at this. You can skip those parts of the book. You can yeah. skip those parts of the book. I mean, the the thing is that a lot of what you and I have been discussing is bigger sweeps of humanity, right? We have been talking about cultural change. We've been talking about high-level communication skills. We've been talking a lot of theory. And when your sister just died or your kid was shot at school, or something horrendous erupts in your life, none of this theory matters at all. And one of the things that I really love about the book is it starts with that, right? This is as bad as you think. Mm. So I was just saying so much of the great teachings that we have from many spiritual traditions get co-opted and... I don't want you listening to this if you haven't seen the book yet or haven't read the book yet to think that it's not going to address where you are in your pain right now because I'm too busy saying what's deeply wrong with the world. That's only a part of it. And there's a sentence in there that says, if you are newly grieving, just skip this first part, come back to it later if you want, but, or don't, you know, whatever. I think that the cultural conversation is very important, especially for people who want to be supportive and conversations about cultural change and generational change are not always useful to somebody at the center of a catastrophe. Yeah, that's so true. And, and I think the other important thing that you have at the very, very beginning of the book, it might even be the first line I'd I'd have to look, but um, you kind of break down like what 
grief even is. Cause I've mm-hmm. never even stopped to think about it. I just view grief as just pain, you know, like yeah. grief to me is just pain and I don't want to deal with it. I, I want to bypass it somehow. I don't want to feel it. I want it to go away. And you have this great line that says, there's nothing wrong with grief. It's a natural extension of love. And later on, another quote, I think that, that p- pairs well with this one is loving each other means losing each other. Mm. And my God, if that doesn't sum up life, yeah. Because we're all going to lose each other eventually. Yeah. Like, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important. We have to start at with what, what grief actually is. And it's this evidence that you loved and loved well, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think thinking about it that way, like equating grief and love, like if somebody asks you what love is, it's hard to be succinct there, isn't it? Right? Because it takes a lot of forms. It takes a lot of forms. Grief is the same thing. Right? Grief encompasses a lot of different emotions and experiences and biopsychosocial impacts. Like, it's, it's not a one thing. It's a collection of things the same way that love is. And you're right. I mean, those lines in the book where grief is part of love. Right? I think well, one of the lines that's in there somewhere that says grief is part of love and no part of love gets dismissed. Right. Yeah. Loving each other means losing each other. And, and you said, um, grief is evidence of, of having loved and loving well. And I want to expand that because you can actually experience deep grief for a complex relationship, right. Yeah. With an abusive person or, or whatever that grief Grief is an expression of love, and sometimes it is for the love that truly existed, and also sometimes for the love that didn't get to exist. Mm. So, you know, grief grief is a is a yearning for connection. Right? Grief is an experience of relatedness in so many forms. Right? The same things that you feel when you are newly in love with someone or something, like every system gets affected, right? Like you're like too excited to sleep and you forget to eat, or you know, like all these, you know, if it's if it's in the body, love affects it and grief affects it. Right? These are mm. relational experiences, not single emotions. And I think that's one of the things that gets tricky because we've grief is so uncomfortable and so scary that we've treated it like a one single thing that has one single solution, right? Instead of a complex web of things that uh, deserves support and curiosity all around it. Uh, it, it made me think, so when you dive into that in the book, it, it mm-hmm. immediately made me think of one of my favorite human beings, Richard Rohr, and where he talks about um, the dangers of falling into dualistic thinking. And it seems that our approach, even to grief, uh, we kind of boil it down or simplify it into this very simplistic, dualistic, you have two choices. And yep. you even talk about that in the book, like you have the option A or option B, but really it, it, that does a disservice to the complexity and the, the nuances um, of just being a human being. Like we are very complex. And Rory even talks about the fact that like love being this thing that is 
unquantifiable. You can't measure love. You know, you can't test love. You can't say, well, I have more love than this other person. It's just this mysterious thing. And I would put grief at its parallel in the mm-hmm. same sense. Like you said, it affects everything. It affects your body. And you even talk about that in the book too, and how it mm-hmm. kind of impacts you physiologically as well. Yeah. I, I love that. Grief, grief is like, I mean, the, the binary doesn't work for anything with humans. Binary is for code. Two options only. It's for code. It's not for yeah. human experience in any way. <laughs> but I, th- I think that, you know, pain and grief and loss are so daunting. And so we, we feel so underskilled with them um, that the way that we have dealt with that overwhelm is by being really reductive with human, mm-hmm. with being human, right? Here are these four easy steps. Here are these five simple stages. Here are the, here, do this and you will feel better, right? Like on off, right? Don't deal with your grief. Don't get over it. Don't look on the bright side. Don't rise above. You're just going to be, I think the line in the book is like rocking in the basement in a corner wearing sackcloth forever, mm, right? Yep. <laughs> so we have these two options for being human. You can be forever broken, and waste your life and just be sad and alone and never do anything else. Or you can be 100% better and everything is fine. And anything less than 100% better, no evidence, no trace, you failed. That is just not how humans work. It is not how humans work. It's not how we work in love. It's not how we work in grief. It's not how we work in our food choices. Like it is just, it is not a human thing to be that one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. It, it boils it down into a, a recipe that's just far too simple for. Yeah. It's far too, I mean, that is the way that we try to make really big overwhelming things manageable is mm. deny their power and make them a pass-fail experiment. (laughs) Yep. Right? It is the way that we deal with the overwhelming reality of being human is by trying to shrink it into something that is less than human. Right? I mean, we do this with religion and with our gods too, right? Like that, um, if, if there is a spiritual or bigger than us underpinning to the entire universe. Like that is too vast, right? That's too big. And I can't handle that. I am just a tiny speck on a tiny speck in a tiny system. Like it just, it's too much for me to take in. You know, that, uh, that line somewhere, I think in the Christian tradition that if you heard the true voice of God, your head would explode, right? Like there is an immensity that is too big for us. And the way that we handle that is to fashion gods that look like us that have the same like pettiness and whatever (laughs) as us, because it makes the immensity manageable and solvable. I'm not saying that's true for every spiritual practice in every religion, obviously, but that there is that, that we try to make the immensity manageable by making it, like reducing it to its parts, reducing it to a formula, reducing it to a set of rules that people have to obey or not obey and face the consequences, right? We do this relationally. We do this emotionally. We do this culturally. It it is something that we do, and I just want us to be curious about that. Like, what would it be like to build a world together where we get to 
explore the full expression of being humans in connection? What would that be like? What kind of world would we build where everybody gets to say, ouch, when something hurts and we hear them? Like, what would shift if we started doing that? I mean, everything would change. Mm. Since you've kind of touched on it a little bit already, and a lot of the listeners who are listening right now um, either have come from some sort of spiritual tradition uh, or have come out of one, Mm -hmm. uh, even, um, one of the things that caught my attention that you talk about is this term called spiritual bypassing. I think a lot of people listening have probably experienced this firsthand. So um, uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So spiritual bypassing is not my term. It's been around for a while, but um, it is the practice of using religion or spirituality as a way to erase what somebody is experiencing or what you you yourself are experiencing, right? So um, an, ex- uh, an example of this in the Christian tradition would be like, um, don't grieve because you'll see your person in heaven or um, don't be sad because your your person is reunited with Jesus. Like you can't have both of them. So how dare you be sad because we believe in this? Uh, that sort of spiritual gaslighting is really, really, really common. So, um, you know, I, I gave the example of the, the African people the African priest from whatever tradition they're in, like the thing that you do in this situation is to shave your head, do the right ritual, put it behind you and let the person be free, their spirit be free. There are so many ways that we use religious and spiritual traditions to erase being human. And it's that same mechanism, right? It's like, oh, this is scary. Let me get out. Let me get out of this. And there are ways to use religion and spiritual practice to support the truth of somebody's experience. A lot of people take a lot of comfort in their faith, whatever that faith is. And I love that. I take a lot of comfort in the uh, very unique to me. (laughs) There is something more than this way that I engage with the world. And it's, it doesn't take the hardness away right like there there are ways to lean into your faith lean into your traditions whether they're ones you've inherited or ones you've chosen for yourself to find ways to be companioned inside what you're experiencing instead of feeling erased in what you're experiencing and so many people have left their lifelong institutions of faith because of the way that they were treated when somebody died or when they got a, a life-altering illness or injury. Um, we, you know, they're included in this sort of spiritual bypassing stuff is also like the you manifest your own reality trash talk uh, where, you know, like in the, in the eighties, um, you know, Louise Hayes books, like you can hear, heal your life. Like if you get cancer, it's because you have toxic thoughts that you didn't get rid of. Right, So we blame and shame people for the things that happen because their thoughts were impure. Um, you know, like the picking on Louise Hayes here because so much of what she did during the 80s was um, to shame and ridicule people um, living with AIDS and HIV, right? Mm-hmm. That there is some badness inside your body that is manifesting and, and that is that message. And it's certainly not unique to Christianity. It's not unique to sort of new age spirituality. Um I'm not going to show you now, but I have a a tattoo on my arm that is um, uh, 
abyssus abyssum invocat, right, which is the beginning of a larger prayer, originally in Aramaic, and originally the the prayer was. Um, the void calls out to the void in the voice of your waterfalls, your storms and tempests will not consume me. Right. And it, in its original form, from what we understand as the original form, was a, a calling out, a longing for connection with the God force in nature. Right. The threat of the natural environment will not destroy our connection and my love for you. And from the depths of my very being that I feel in this natural world, I call out to that God force that I feel here. And then what the early Christian church did was to twist that and to retranslate it and to say, uh, the void calls out to the void. Any bad thing that happens in your life is because the badness, the original sin in you called it to you. So this spiritual gaslighting, this spiritual bypassing has been around forever. We can't deal with the pain in this life. So how can we make it your fault how can we make it so that, you know, if you get sick, somehow you called this to you, right? It's another way that we are dealing with the beauty and the horror of being alive, right? Spiritual bypassing, mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about it a little bit without naming it that earlier in our discussion when I said, you know, it's that when we were talking about the generational differences, that whole thing with like you create your own reality, um, raise your vibration, if you want to be in, I heard this actually a lot when Matt died, like if you want to be in after death communication with him, you have to stop being so sad. You have to raise your vibration. It's basically your fault. If you're not feeling him around you, it's because you're crying too much. Like the gaslighting that we do in the name of a God force is just, whoa, if there's a God in any sort of personal form, they are pissed. Yeah. <laughs> We're using the words in that way. So, um, you know, again, like it, for me, it all does boil down to we just don't know what to do with the pain or the love in this world. And the ways that our small, our small human outlooks, our small human minds, our, our scared human minds have tried to navigate that. Uh, they make sense. Yeah. But they don't work. Ugh. It's so true. And one of the thing, one of my favorite parts of the book um, is around page 53, I think, where you talk about um, unresolved. I, I have the quote here. Hang on. Um, un, unaddressed and unacknowledged pain doesn't go away. And I think that's something that we see uh, a lot, you know, because mm-hmm. if just like anything else, anger, if suppressed, is going to manifest in some other way. Oh, for prob- sure. Probably not in a good way, you know. For sure. Um, Never turns into like beautiful pottery, you know. It's uh, well, sometimes it, comes, it does. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> rage, rage can be good for that's creation true. too. But I, I, this is—I mean, there's a theme running through everything that we're talking about, which is you know, there, there's so much unspoken pain in this world, generationally, culturally, individually, all of these things, and that pain will find a way to speak. It will. We were talking a while ago about the the baby booter baby boomer generation. Those are the folks who came up with uh, Keep Calm and Carry On, which is uh, a UK propaganda piece that actually didn't come out at that time, but was like found in the archives of propaganda for that time. Like here's all of this devastation and destruction and you're seeing your families and your communities, like if they weren't killed in the war, they came back maimed, 
right? Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Don't look at it. None of this stuff. And what we see in that population who was basically told from the top levels of of the political world down, like nothing happened, nothing to see, don't feel it, go back to work, be productive. You get spikes of suicidality and drug and alcoholism and interpersonal violence. You see spikes in child abuse, right? When you try to hold that pain down, it will find other ways to come out. And and now, you know, before the pandemic, um, there was a lot of research that was showing that loneliness is a bigger public health epidemic than smoking. And a lot of the, yeah, right? Like it's an amazing study. It was done by Cigna, the health insurance company, but loneliness, the health insurance company found that loneliness was a bigger public health risk than smoking. And a lot of the work that has come out of that is like, let's help people not be lonely anymore. And I'm like, whoa, back up. Why are people lonely? If you don't address why people are lonely, you can't resolve that loneliness. You're not going to resolve loneliness by encouraging people to join more clubs, (laughs) right? Like- loneliness comes from not being able to tell the truth about your own life and feel heard and loved in it. If every time I come to you and I say, you know, I'm really overwhelmed with this experience or I'm so sad about what's happening to this planet and you hijack that conversation, you tell me to look on the bright side, you tell me that like I can dream the better world into existence if I only align my thoughts. Like I still have that emotion and I know that I can't bring it to you. If I can't come to you and be my true self, then I am going to be lonely because I have no true companionship. If we don't change the way that we talk to each other and hear each other and support each other when we're in pain, we will never solve the problem of loneliness. We will never solve the problem of loneliness until we can see and hear each other for the truth of our own lives. Wow. That's, that's pretty powerful. Um, yeah. Wow. I, I know we're running low on time here, but I, I had and one. My battery on my Mac is dying too. So, you know, I forgot to plug in, which you know, I'm <laughs> sure there's a metaphor there. Anywho. <laughs> um, so with, with all these things that we've kind of already talked about, like mm. the, the power of acknowledgement and the, uh, the need to stop seeing this as a problem to be solved or something to be fixed and and the need for uh, safe places uh, to go with this pain so that we can, you know, kind of, um, you know, lean into it, but in a, in a communal sense and in a safe way. Um, one of the things I thought was really was really important that you talk about too. And, and I, I love how you quote Dr. Pauline boss, cause we've had her on and she's amazing. Ambiguous law. So good. Mm-hmm. Um, but she talks about, and I think this is incredibly true, she talks about the kind of the myth of uh, closure and how it's bullshit, you know. And you talk about the the idea of moving on, quote, moving on. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no moving on. Um, you know, you just kind yeah. of learn to, to live with this new sense of normality, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm also not a fan of the phrase "the new normal," but that's just because it irks me yeah. <laughs> etymologically. Um, but yeah, this whole idea—no, none of it's normal. Um, this idea that if you just do things correctly, your loss won't hurt anymore. If you just find closure, right, in those um, completely debunked out outdated stages of grief, right? Acceptance is the final thing, right? Like acceptance, closure. Um, you know, now that the trial is over, the family can find closure. Like, no, no, closure is not a thing. Your person will never not be dead. 
right? You mentioned earlier that like your daughter does not get to experience your mom as their grandparent for as long as she should. That's never not going to suck, right? Mm -hmm. When your kid hits a milestone, it's never not going to suck that she doesn't have her grandmother there to cheer her on. That's never going to not suck. Yeah. You will find ways, you and, and everyone, you know, we find ways to live with that vacancy, to integrate that vacancy. But there is never a time when that is closed, right? There's a line in the book and a line that I use a lot on social media that um, grief lasts as long as love lasts. That's not doing it wrong. That's doing it right. Right? Your love for the person, your love for that relationship, like that, that doesn't have an expiration date. Why would you want to close that off? It, it, it's not going to do that, right? Like if you decide yeah. that you're done and dusted with it, okay, it's still going to come back sometimes. It doesn't mean it has to knock you to the floor every time. Like we don't have to go into that duality of forever destroyed or entirely healed. Like how about the middle? How about the middle? Like that is where most people live. And can we talk about that? Can we talk about how you live alongside the many vacancies in your life? And how do you make those as beautiful and survivable and alive as you can? That is very different than packaging stuff up in a neat and tidy bow and sticking it on a shelf that you never think about. I mean, how else do we end this other than just With like a rant that? on closure? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, there's so much more. I have, I literally have, you can't see this, it's off to my right, but pages <laughs> and pages of questions that we could sure. not even get to. But that's why you have a book. And so yeah. I would strongly encourage uh, everyone, because uh, again, like I said at the beginning of this episode, I, I think it's incredibly important uh, for both people who are experiencing grief and those who just have a desire to be better about supporting those who are grieving. Um, go check it out. It's okay that you're not okay meeting grief and loss in a culture that doesn't understand by my amazing guest, Megan Devine. Thank you so dun, much. Dun, dun. Yeah. And I also <laughs> want to give a shout out if you, if you need to hear more of me having these conversations, um, Season two of my podcast here after with Megan Devine is just about to wrap up and we're going to launch with season three and start calling the podcast. It's okay that you're not okay. So it's easier for people to find it. Fewer things for you to remember. It's the same as the title of the book. It's okay that you're not okay. <laughs> and we'll have all those links in the show notes. So check it out. Go follow her. Uh, go check out all the, the resources that she has on the website. And uh, uh, thank you again for listening. So thanks for being here, Megan. This was you are a lot welcome. of fun.
Won't you go 